0: And this is Volts for April twenty eighth, two thousand twenty three. Getting rooftop solar onto low and middle income housing. I'm your host, David Roberts. For all its explosive growth in recent years, rooftop solar is far less frequently installed by low and middle income households than by wealthy ones. Though that disparity is diminishing somewhat over time, it remains large. The barriers keeping lower-income consumers from solar go well beyond the financial, though financial barriers are substantial, ranging from credit histories to low-quality and poorly insulated buildings to lack of supportive policy. State policymakers, foundations, and nonprofit groups have been trying for years to overcome this problem. Finally, the pieces are beginning to fall in place, and it is becoming clearer which kinds of interventions work and which kinds don't. No one knows more about the history, design, and successes of these programs than Vero Borgmeyer of the Clean Energy States Alliance. She has been analyzing and advocating for these policies for years. She just came out with a report on how foundations can help. So I was eager to talk to her about the rationale for low-income solar programs, the features that make them work, what's in the Inflation Reduction Act that can help, and what further policies are needed. Okay, then, with no further ado, Vero Borgmeier, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Cool. So there's a lot to talk about here with this topic which I've had sort of like in the corner of my eye for years and years now, these these, these programs for low-income and mid-income solar, getting solar to low-income and mid-income people. It's sort of had it on my periphery forever, and so I'm happy to jump in directly. My sense of the sort of state of play among the the wonks is the best way to help poor people is to give them money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if you have money to help them and you want to do something other than just give it to them, you need to sort of justify, like, why is this better than just giving them money? Yeah. So I guess to start with, my first question is just, why should we care about specifically getting solar on these households versus just helping them with with money? So what is the sort of justification for this kind of whole area? Why do we want to get solar on low and middle income households?
1: Well, so there are two questions in there, right? So the One question is, uh, there's a climate question. Obviously, we want solar, not because because we think it's great for uh, savings and all that, but also because we have a climate crisis that's ongoing and uh, we need to do something about this. So that's the reason why we want solar. But why uh, LMI communities, and I'll use LMI in a kind of a a, a loose way. Uh, LMI stands for low and moderate income. Mm -hmm. Um, LMI sometimes is just low income. And that generally means kind of in this area, generally means uh, below 80% area median income. Some people also define it as below 120%. But, you know, without going too much in the details, Uh. that's generally what it means. So the the reason why you want to make sure people have access, one of the reasons you want to make sure those people have access to solar is they spend a much higher percentage of their income on their utility bills as the rest of us. About almost four times as much as uh, you or me, and mm. I'm you know lumping us in the same income brackets. <laughs> I don't know if that's correct, but... So they spend a lot of money on their utility bills. And so obviously, when you're giving them a way that month after month after month to reduce those utility bills, that kind of have a really outsized effect on them, right? So it's not just the cost of purchasing the solar to begin with, it's the continuing saving over the lifetime of the asset that you'd have to kind of look at.
0: It's kind of like giving them money every month.
1: Yeah, Essentially. Yeah. Uh, assuming there is a saving, which, you know, it has to be structured that way. It doesn't just happen uh, like that. And then there is the resilience benefit that you can get when paired with batteries. And, you know, I was saying earlier, I'm going to use low income communities as kind of LMI communities, very generally speaking. But uh, we're also talking here about communities of color in communities that generally, because of redlining, have uh, older housing stock, right. houses that are not well insulated. Uh, when you start with that and you add storage, uh, you you get a really uh, huge resilience benefit f- uh, for them. LMI also means higher rate of chronic diseases, right? So mm. you need your dialysis machine to work all the time, not just some <laughs> of the time. Right. So that's another really big reason. But I'd say your question, though, about why not just give them money, uh, if you kind of put aside, you know, is it politically pragmatic right. <laughs> to just give them money, which I don't think at this stage it is. We tend to, uh, <laughs> we tend to uh, wage a war on the poor instead of waging a war on poverty in this country, right? So yes. um, setting that aside, if you're looking at who deploys the solar in, the, in this country, it's the private sector, right? And there are other barriers that are kind of standing in the way of LMI communities getting solar, other than just the initial funding, the initial funding is a big part of it. Uh, but there's also lots of other reasons why customers don't trust the developers. Developers are not interested in serving, uh, or generally, not all of them.
0: Let's talk about those a little bit. Let's talk about those barriers because mm-hmm. I know you know, like intuitively, as you say, the obvious barrier I think which jumps out at everybody is just not enough money. That's what, yeah. that's what, it, that's what low income means. But that's not the only reason that deployment of rooftop solar is lower in these communities, even than what you would predict based on income, right? So yeah. the, the the barriers that go beyond income. So let's talk about some of those. Like, what are the kind of things that are stopping these households from accessing rooftop solar?
1: Well, so the the funding one, I don't want to just fully put it aside, right? Because that's a really huge one. Yeah. Um, the upfront cost, and just for your listeners who are may not be familiar with the cost of solar for a regular household... So, if you look at the average size of a solar asset in this country, which is about seven kilowatt, I believe, mm-hmm. and then the average cost you know between the three and four dollars per watt. So that's what—that's twenty-five thousand dollars, roughly, that you have to find, yeah. <laughs> and that's—that's
0: not—that's uh, not small for anyone. It's really, not small,
1: is. right? It's not small, and that upfront cost—if you, you and I have access to other kind of funding, we have access to financing, right? Right. Um, low-income communities might people might have a lower FICO score or no FICO at all, or maybe even no bank.
0: FICO FICO is just a credit score, right?
1: Yes, that's right, yeah that's a, that's a credit score that's being used by lenders to decide how much they want to charge you essentially, and whether they will even charge you, whether they will agree to give you a loan right. <laughs> Not to mention if you are really struggling to put food on the table, the idea of taking on additional debt is just you know yeah, not always interesting, at least not for everybody <laughs> we We can get back to that, but so a big barrier beyond the funding is the physical barrier, right? So the the site suitability, what's called site suitability criteria. Roofs could be in a really poor shape. If you have issues of lead and asbestos in your house, it's really hard to get a contractor to go in and like crawl in your attic to go install something. Uh, They're just not going to want to do it. And then there are some things that are kind of more linked to the type of housing you might be looking at, right? So uh single family homes is one thing. Multifamily homes have specific issues. Uh, you could think of where the meters are located. That's kind of a dumb one, but it really is a problem. So if you have meters that are specifically dedicated to apartments, that's great. If you have one meter and then everybody kind of shares, that's uh creating kind of more issues. But so, yeah, physical barriers are a big one. And also, the way that the subsidies that we've mostly been using for solar up to this point, so the tax credits, uh, primarily, so the investment tax credit up to this point, the PTC, the production tax credit, wasn't open to solar. Now it is with the IRA. You can't monetize the ITC if you don't have a tax basis, right? So, right. the non taxable entities, Affordable housing, the nonprofit developers, uh, none of those can access uh, the ITC oh, right. or could access the ITC until the IRA with direct pay. And then as an individual, a homeowner that does not pay taxes does not, cannot utilize that uh, in a very obvious way. So there, there are ways to kind of go around that. But generally speaking.
0: Isn't it also the case that LMI people are more likely to rent or more likely to live in uh, apartment buildings where they don't?
1: Well, it depends. Actually, Isn't that
0: also a problem?
1: I mean, it is an issue that the, you'll find those traditional kind of split incentive issues, but it's not necessarily the case that it's everywhere. I don't have in mind the number, the percentage of a renters versus homeowner on top of my head, but it really depends on the states. And I think that's when you're a state policymaker, you're looking at kind of building a solar program. Your housing market is not a monolith, and your solar market as a result is also not a monolith. So you have to really dedicate brain space uh, to creating solutions that are really tailored to what you're trying to tackle, to specific issues in your state.
0: So barriers, we've got the obvious one, finance and and funding. Mm -hmm. We've got physical site suitability, meaning like the actual buildings themselves might need work before they're even ready for... uh, one that springs to mind always when I think about these communities is just who's reaching out to them and talking to them and educating them. Like, are they aware? Is awareness a big oh, yeah. barrier?
1: Big time. And I would say those kind of behavioral barriers exist both on the developer side hmm. and on the customer side. On the developer side, they just will not market to them, right? Uh, right. They just viewed as as not, not good customers, which is definitely not the case. There are studies out there showing about the same kind of default rates as auto loans, right? So oh, really? if it's good enough, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if it's good enough for like a giant, you know, trillion dollar industry, I think it should be good enough for solar. Uh, and there's nothing as boring as an auto loan. So <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: so I think we could, we could do this, but on the developer side, that's really uh, just a perceived risk kind of issue. And on a customer side, they're trust issues as well, right? Yes. Lots of flyby night actors. Yeah, I was
0: going to say scams are quite common. Like these oh, are yeah. the these people mm-hmm. tend to be targets of a lot of scams.
1: Yeah, yeah. So one that you hear about, and I don't have you know specific data on this, just kind of stories. But one that you hear about all the time is developers coming in and then uh, promising a big government subsidy because they're thinking mm-hmm. about the tax credit, and then a homeowner will just go for it and then realize, oh wait. I can't monetize this at all. This is not working uh, for me. I, I'm not getting the money. This uh, this money is just paper and I don't have anything to apply it to. So yeah, that's, uh, you know, dishonest business practices are also, are also out there. So all this to say, it requires a lot more effort for customer acquisition and you can't just, you know, sit and expect those customers to come to you and Obviously, as a developer, if you have the choice between targeting that group over here that you think is going to be much better at paying, which, you know, it isn't, but uh, you think it's going to be the case, and also naturally trust you more versus a population that trusts you less and is harder to get to, well, you know, the choice is easily made.
0: Right. There's all these sort of like, I don't know what to call them, soft costs, I guess, Mm with just like developers tend to be in the socioeconomic bracket of a certain type of customer and then Everything becomes easier communication, right? Like they understand one another, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah.
1: And then you have other things like language barriers, obviously. Right. And that can be a big one in some communities.
0: So it's not just effort, it's who is going to talk to them. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, choice, finding someone that is trusted within those communities to communicate. Oh, absolutely. Is a big deal. Yeah. So we're going to get a a little bit into how states are doing this later, but just I want to start with the IRA because obviously, like everything in the energy world, Uh, is different now (laughs) we're in a new yeah we're in a new world we're all discovering this this new world so what what specifically did ira do for lmi rooftop solar
1: um lots (laughs) (laughs) of course i would say i would say lots but uh, lots in ways that aren't necessarily fully clear at this Mm. stage I mean, the way I think about it is because I work at the Clean Energy States Alliance, right? Uh, I look at it from a state policymaker perspective. How can they build programs around uh, what the federal governments put together and that kind of funding? So the three big buckets, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, obviously, Mm. but just to organize uh, my thoughts, the three big buckets are the tax credits, the greenhouse gas reduction fund, and the loan programs office. Mm. And I'll start with the least obvious one, which is the loan program office. The, the innovation, so there's something called Title 17 that offers clean energy loan guarantees, right? Mm-hmm. And that up to IJA, so that's pre IRA, until IJA, someone applying for this was required to show some sort of innovative element, right? So the Loan Programs Office wasn't going to say, oh, sure, I'll guarantee your solar thing over there. That looks great. No, it had to be something a little bit more exciting than solar. Right. That's
0: sort of the point of LPO, right? Yeah. It's sort of yeah, seed, yeah, yeah. seed innovative things.
1: Yeah, well, since IJA, that's not the case anymore.
0: And by the way, we should say IJA is the hell. I don't know what it stands for. The infrastructure, yeah. <laughs> the infrastructure. Inf- act.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the bipartisan infrastructure law. Right. Uh, so the what does it stand for? Infrastructure and investment jobs, uh, and jobs something. act or something. Um, <laughs> so the the kind of the first big piece of climate legislation passed in this new era that we're in. So yeah, so the projects that are supported by a state energy finance institution can access loan guarantees now from title 17 mm. from LPO without having to show that they're uh, super fancy and innovative. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> and the funding then for LPO was also expanded through IRA. So so the IRA uh, really put in a lot of a lot more cash into this thing that they that they started doing. I'll give you an example to show you how this relates to low and moderate income solar. So imagine a community solar developer, you know, wants to develop some solar that benefits LMI communities, and they go and get some I don't know, some grants from the state to serve a specific area. Mm-hmm. Um, the developer now has access to. An LPO loan guarantee, and they could say, "I need a construction loan. Go out, find that construction loan. Is typically, you know, the most expensive part of the process in terms of capital cost. And now they can talk to their private lender and say, "Hey, I got this grant from the state. That means I can. That means I can apply for this loan guarantee. How about you give me a lower rate because DOE is going to be there and guarantee that I'm a good bet for you, right?" So that's a really, a really interesting kind of piece of the equation that I guess doesn't really uh, get talked about much unless you work at LPO.
0: <laughs> so like federal loan guarantees can basically lower the, the cost of capital for, yeah. for, for developers.
1: And it doesn't have to be that the state participates in the way of grants. It could be uh, they could be doing things like a loan loss reserve or straight up loan. Like they could invest in however way that they want. They just have to support the project at which point they become the project becomes eligible for an LPO guarantee, and that's as long as uh, the, that support is being done by this state energy finance institution, which can be a big number of things, but it could be a state energy office. So the folks I work with,
0: or a state green bank.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So so that's that's one pocket of money in the IRA. And the next kind of pocket of money that can really have an impact on l m i communities in terms of solar deployment would be the greenhouse gas reduction fund so that's an e p a program in total so it's got a it's got a bunch of buckets it's got a seven billion dollar bucket that's uh, they're calling it solar for all actually the the implementation framework came out yesterday from e p a so it's all mm. very new <laughs> and exciting. Uh, this is the talk of the town this morning. <laughs> and the, so there's a $7 billion bucket for uh, called Solar for All that will only apply for the benefit of LMI communities. Um, and that's $7 billion that the states can apply to. Uh, and it's states, municipalities, tribes. Um, but essentially what EPA wants to see is they want to see solar, rooftop solar, community solar, distributed storage, And upgrades, and the really cool thing about that, and the rules that we just uh, learned about, you know, yesterday, is that electrical panel upgrades, roof repairs, they are covered under that. So that's Ah, really awesome.
0: This addresses the site suitability stuff we're talking about. So so you can get some money to prepare your house Mm
1: -hmm. for solar. Absolutely. And hopefully uh, you can you know enjoy the benefit of a, a well-built solar program that your state are going to put together.
0: Right. So states states put together some kind of program and then go to the EPA and say, hey, we have this program, give us yeah. some money to
1: fund it. That's the idea. That's the idea. And then there are two more buckets in there that could apply to solar. I mean, solar is part of it, but then it's open to kind of different types of applicant. There's a 14- billion dollar bucket that focuses on kind of clean investments so that's gonna go to two to three national nonprofits so that they, they the point there is to leverage uh, funding and, and private sector lending or investment and generally speaking at a national level so do things really big essentially and forty percent of that is as part of the justice 40 framework is going to go to LMI communities and the remaining six billion is to capitalise organisations that are directly uh, lending or providing financial assistance and technical assistance to LMI communities. So the the six billion bucket and the seven billion bucket are all LMI, yeah. and the fourteen billion bucket is forty uh, percent LMI.
0: That's a that's a lot of billions.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of billions, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And I, th- I think the the fun part of this is when you work in, the, in, in and around state government is everybody is super excited, but no one knows what's going to happen. <laughs> and there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of like, how are we going to do this? Yeah, you know? I guess
0: it goes without saying that th- these monies have not started dispersing yet, no, right? No, I no, mean, we not, just, yeah. We're just figuring out the rules for them. So, yeah. so no, no state has yet gotten this money.
1: No, not yet, not yet. But then, uh, so at at CISA, we are actually going to be working on trying to build some sort of a kind of a template program for states right. that they can use and replicate. Because the the key here, uh, with particularly with the seven billion bucket, is that. It's going to go quick. <laughs> yeah, They're opening the... I know it sounds ridiculous. It's a ridiculous thing to say, but they are opening in the summer. And then the money has to be out of EPA within like a year, essentially. No shit. That's, yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so it's like a big... There's like a bunch of... We're herding toward the trough here. Uh, yep. And once you divide that up among 50 states, I guess it's maybe not as big as it looks on the on the surface. So... I guess the other bus- bucket is the tax credit, which...
1: Yes, the tax credit. And so the tax credit is a fun one because it's... I mean, they're all fun. I, I'm, and... <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nothing like money. Nothing like money for the stuff Nothing you Nothing like.
1: like money. Yeah, exactly. Going to solar uh, for LMI communities to get, to get us excited. But the tax credit is really, really big, right? And every, it seems like every other week there is another study that comes out and says, hey... This is going to be this big. No, just kidding. It's this big.
0: (laughs) Right. It's it's uncapped, which means – I mean, I think we've been over this on the pod before, but just for listeners who don't know, these tax credits are not – there's no upper limit set. So how much money the feds are going to spend on these tax credits depends entirely on demand, just how many people – Apply for them, and so as you say, we keep getting these new analyses saying uh, it's it's going to be a three billion dollar program. No, five billion. No, ten billion. Like the the estimates of how much of this is going to be demanded keep going up and up.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's and it's it's really big. There's one piece. So the part of it that's uh, there are a couple parts that are that are exciting. There's one piece that's the structure, the change in the structure of the tax credits that can make a huge difference in uh, some institutions that uh, before the IRA did not have access to tax credits, now can have access to tax credits. And then there is a piece of it that actually is capped, but that we don't exactly know how that's going to work. So let me start with this, this last one first. There is a new LMI. What well, we're calling an adder. So it's it's an allocation, and it would be it will be either ten or twenty percent extra. So twenty percentage points or ten percentage points extra on top of you know whatever else you have. So either your thirty percent base or your forty or your fifty if you're if you're meeting all of the criteria that the statute has set, and that is capped at one point eight gigawatt per year. Hmm. So the way this is going to work is not like the rest of the tax credits where you just kind of go through your projects and your tax credits work the normal way. This one is allocated after the fact. So it's a whole process that projects are going to have to go through with treasury. And at this stage, it's a little bit unclear how this is all going to work. There's some rules that were just issued, I want to say about a month ago, but don't quote me on that, just recently, let's say. (laughs) And um, the way this is working for 2023, at least, is that we're only going to have about 60 days depending on the category you f- you find yourself in 60 days to apply for uh, the tax credit within a whole year
0: after your project is done
1: well no that's the kicker <laughs> <laughs> that's the kicker you can't apply retroactively you have to wait you can't place in service your project before those 60 days. So that's the part where we're not too sure how this is going to work. And then DOE, Treasury are going to have to figure this out because it doesn't quite fit a traditional you know, residential solar business model.
0: This is sort of like where nonprofits like CISA come in, right? Like you figure this out. Hopefully. You set up some sort of template, <laughs> right? Some sort of template yeah. that businesses can use so that every project doesn't have to sort of learn all of this uh, well, from scratch.
1: We can help find the information list <laughs> right. there yeah but yeah at this stage we're not, we're not sure how that's going to work, but it's potentially still a very big. And then on the on the structural front, so direct pay and transferability are those new two fancy things mm-hmm. that we can do with tax credit. so direct pay being you go through your project, you finish your blessing service, et etc et etc. And instead of receiving a tax credit at some point, so after you file your taxes and, and uh, request all that, at some point you get a direct payment from the government. So that's really exciting for all the nonprofits that previously did not have access uh, to that. And I'm talking, there, there's so many nonprofits. I think maybe that's uh, something that people don't necessarily see. There are a lot of nonprofits working with and for and organized by as well, LMI communities, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking affordable housing, we're talking health clinics, we're talking homeless shelters, you know, all sorts of stuff.
0: So just the, sh- the shift to direct pay alone. Is sort of an equity, is a justice thing, right? Because yeah, it's mostly going to be nonprofits that
1: Yeah. I mean it's too bad that they didn't want to just you know, when we're talking about kind of giving money directly, I think tax credits are whether the government kind of gives out money directly, right? And they decided when they passed the IRA, Congress decided, we're gonna do this only for nonprofits. Why not for people? I don't know. Yes,
0: uh, you you do know though. It's, it's, <laughs> his name is Joe Manchin, right? Let's not pretend. Let's not pretend yeah. we don't know why why all the flaws in this bill are in there. Yeah. Okay. So there's buckets and buckets of money in the IRA of yeah. various places for LMI communities, LMI developers, mm-hmm. nonprofits who want to work with LMI communities to go get. So let's talk a little turkey then about what these programs. Look like like what is uh, what are the sort of tools that states use to reach these communities? and maybe if you want, you can use Connecticut as your sort of standard bearer because as I understand it, they have the top of the line program,
1: yeah. I mean, I should say they had because it's finished it, it terminated the project the the program terminated cuz uh
0: Oh it was like a set amount of money they they dispersed and then
1: No they were looking for a specific megawatt capacity and they reached uh. that and then uh, the legislature was just like yeah you're done you're moving on to solar now, <laughs> to solar and storage so now they're doing solar and storage with justice instead of just solar with justice which is also really exciting but so, and I should say, part of my work at CISA is working as part of the Scaling Up Solar Project, which is a DOE-funded project. So, you know, my my salary comes from, uh, part of my salary comes from DOE. Mm. We try to help states replicate the Solar for All program from Connecticut. And it was a really, really successful program. I like to talk about it in terms of how much of the the savings that people get, because that always blows people away. So there is a VIC study that kind of shows the kind of savings that the customers from the Connecticut Solar for All program received. And we're talking $1,300 a year. That is ginormous. Per household. Yes.
0: Yeah, that's not... uh... That's not, That's not Trump's change. <laughs> it's <laughs> not
1: nothing. And then within that you have uh, you know about 700 dollars uh, worth of solar, and then you have efficiency stacked on it. So what they did that was really smart to start with is that they looked at all the, the uh, incentives that were available in their states, and there, were, there was part of it, the efficiency part, that was really just managed by the utilities. and they were like, well, let's, let's make sure that we do those two things together, And solar plus efficiency in general is just it's a winning combination, I want to say, in terms of savings. For anyone, not even just for LMI communities, but if you stack your incentives and you stack your products, solar and efficiency together works really, really well. So you remember at the beginning when we we're talking about how this upfront cost uh, is really an issue and there is no access to uh, to financing that's available mm-hmm. for you if you are in a certain income bracket. So the program is really a lease program. So it's third-party ownership, TPO. And I should mention that there is a bit of a debate in the advocacy world out there on the kind of the value of a TPO and um, versus direct ownership. So some people are really married.
0: Yeah, I've been tuned into this for a long time. And, you know, I've heard debates about it, not only like financial debates, like which is better mm-hmm. financially, but also like which is better for the homeowner and obviously third-party ownership, which just to explain to listeners who don't understand, it's just, you know, a company owns the solar panels on your roof and what you're buying from them, you buy the power from them basically. So you don't, yeah. you as the household do not have to pay for the panels and the installation, the company pays for that, they own it and you're just basically buying the cheap power. So that's what third-party ownership means. So what is the debate?
1: So the debate is when you're uh, using third-party ownership, some people will say, uh, well, you're not getting all the benefits, all of the wealth creation that happens with solar, which if you're looking purely financially, that's that's true. Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't think there is any need to debate that. Anyone who's ever looked at a solar model can tell you that's true. But the issue there, I think, is that or what I personally think is that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. (laughs) Uh, We can utilize third-party ownership models for what they're really good for, which is giving access to solar, to families, so that they can get savings right now, right? Not tomorrow, not in five years when we figured this out, not hypothetically once a project magically comes online, maybe, potentially, perhaps, mayhaps in the future, but like right now, right? Right. And in most of the programs that I can think of, state programs that focus on third-party ownership, there is some aspect of trying to convince the developer that there needs to be a pathway to ownership. Right, Mm. and I think that's actually been folded now into the greenhouse gas reductions fund, solar for all competition that we were just talking about. Isn't it
0: standard in these TPO arrangements that you that you can buy the panel at the end of whatever the lease period is? Right. Yes,
1: it is very standard. I think what we're talking about here is accelerating that. Right. So how do you make a pathway so that you know at the end of let's say six years, because you know that's about when tax credits or tax equity investors would get out of that investment. In about six years or seven years, is there some way that you can help that customer actually purchase the panels directly, straight up, right? And I think there are uh, developers out there thinking through this. There are states out there thinking through this. And I don't think we need to be married to one system or one deployment uh, model over another. I think they all are good for some things and less good for other things.
0: So you can get a you can get a little bit of a hybrid then. You can get some yeah. of the sort of the benefits of TPO and then maybe ownership in the longer term.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So and then to go back to to the Connecticut, because um, I kind of went astray there. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to the Connecticut model, it's a public private partnership between the Connecticut Green Bank and a company called Posigen. They are a developer that was born out of Katrina, essentially. Mm. And uh really was born in uh, New Orleans to try to help folks get over uh, the consequences of Katrina and really bring some resilience benefit to customers. So what they do is that they stack up efficiency and solar incentives, as I was uh, mentioning earlier, and what the state of Connecticut also did, what the Connecticut Green Bank did, is that they create an elevated incentive, so an extra amount of money, if you met some income qualification criteria. So if you are meeting those criteria, you're getting extra money, positive comes to your house, and then no matter what, you have to go through a, what's that called, an efficiency test, audit. essentially. An, an audit. audit thank, right? you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So you go through your audit and then the company will tell you, okay, well, here are the things we can do kind of on the cheap, the minimum we can do, right. or here are some extra kind of much deeper retrofits that we could do on your house that will bring bring you much deeper savings. Which one do you want? And they give them a the choice. And in addition to that, you get you get your solar. So the other thing that the Connecticut Green Bank did at the time, which is not necessarily required for that kind of a project to work uh, or that kind of a program to work, but that was really helpful in the context. And that's something that states have to think about was to support the company in a different way financially as well. So they offered subordinated debt to the company because at the time Position was a new company, the market was untested. And they were like, "Oh, okay. Well, uh, you know, if we, if you need to be successful serving these customers, if you need an extra bit of support over here, we'll provide that. And that money goes back to the state, so it's just an investment like any other investment. Right, right. And that really helps that developer be motivated <laughs> to to serve those customers really well. So these are kind of just on the financial side and on the behavioral side.
0: So, so just wait, just pause here on the on the yeah. on the financing. So the, the idea here is Posigen comes to your door and says, you know, we'll give you an efficiency audit. Mm-hmm. We'll figure out what you'll need. You'll stack it up, and we'll do it for no money down.
1: For no money down,
0: right? So, so from from the homeowner or the building owner's perspective, this is just like it's a no, it's a no brainer, right? Like, does anyone <laughs> say no to this? <laughs>
1: The no money down is just the first piece. I think it's no money down and cash flow positive, right?
0: Right. So you're making money off it from the word from exactly. the word go. Obedient. Yeah,
1: from the get go. You gotta you gotta make a, a specific uh, a certain target. And the way that they access those customers as well, and that how they decided who to enroll in their program, they did not use FICO scores. So as a company, just generally speaking, they do what's called underwriting to savings. So they look at how strong of a saving they can give a customer and then they essentially bet that it's going to work and that it's going to be strong enough for them to be able to recover their money. So if the customer doesn't make money, they don't make money.
0: Oh, okay. So that seems to me to overcome or at least substantially overcome the funding barrier. And then if you're not using FICO scores, you know, you're sort of overcoming or getting around the kind of credit score barrier. What about just the sort of like Education and community engagement piece. How did Connecticut yeah. approach that?
1: So they did a lot of community-based marketing, and that's been shown to work really well to sell solar in general. And there's been actually also studies uh, looking at the type of messaging that works in LMI communities versus mm. non-LMI communities, and it turns out the messages need to be about the same people want <laughs> savings people want uh, something fancy and new that works really well and they want environmental benefits you know let me
0: put something cool on your house and you'll make money from the second yeah you know like that's <laughs> you don't have to fine-tune that a lot for different audiences it seems yeah. like a pretty pretty universal yeah. appeal there
1: yeah. But the reason, one of the reasons that, that really worked is that the Connecticut Green Bank was super involved in selling the program really hard, right? So no one wakes up you know, in the morning and says, oh, I'm going to figure out how to uh, put this expensive piece of, of, it, of infrastructure on my Especially roof. Especially not these
0: households, right? That's probably yeah. not the top of mind.
1: Exactly. I mean, and even even without that, like it's a. Uh, I can't remember uh, when that was exactly, but a few years ago, there was some study about priorities in spending uh, for people. Energy was like the last one. Like, the, yes. the no things. one wants
0: to think about it. Basically, no
1: one wants to think about it. Just people interested. Um,
0: so Connecticut was aggressive then, and sort of like
1: very aggressive reaching these communities. Yeah and that means you know going to fairs and uh, running solar campaigns uh which are bulk purchasing uh campaigns for solar and and co-branding stuff right so you talk about this trust issue question if the state is there to say no no seriously this is a good program we stand behind it we picked these people and then in addition to that they also vetted all of the contractors that were being used so it's more believable for a customer that has <laughs> right. trust issue than if some guy came to your door and said, yes, trust me, I'm totally going to put something free on your house. <laughs> it's going to be great. So it has
0: official state backing, right? Yeah. More yeah,
1: absolutely. Which I think is really, really important.
0: Are there other pieces of the Connecticut program that are particularly that other states should?
1: If you're looking at purely the lease program, well, I should also mention that's it's a lease, right? It's not a PPA. So as opposed to a PPA where, and there are pros and cons to using mm-hmm. each of those, but a PPA, a customer's bill will go up or down depending on how much the sun is shining that particular month, <laughs> right. right? And if you're very low income, that could be a problem for you, right? right? Seasonality could be an issue if it's the summer. And I don't know if you're not in a state that has good uh, net metering policies, you could end up paying uh, more than you anticipated. And that's problematic, obviously. At least the big difference is that the payment is stable. It's it's always the same thing every month. So that's, it's nice that kind of uh, uh, being able to see over the horizon and say, yeah, this is how much I'm spending for energy. Oh, yeah. And so there, there are lots of other things that they did on the financing side and on the kind of the state programming side that are, I'd say a little too complex to explain <laughs> uh, without, a, without a, a, a paper support, but they're really, really cool programs at the Connecticut Green Bank. I encourage anyone who's even just a little bit interested in kind of state-level policy innovation to really go and look at their, their annual report. is a great place to start because they, they do really cool stuff.
0: Are other states... Taking note, I know Rhode Island, I, I've mm-hmm. seen in your work that Rhode Island sort of learned, seems like yeah. learned from Connecticut and, and more or less kind of took those lessons. Are, are, are these things actively spreading in states or other states? Well, hopefully,
1: this? hopefully, <laughs> if, we, if we do our job right, hopefully. And in, in Rhode Island, so the, the format that was followed was uh, pretty much the same, except that uh, we didn't have efficiency there as an added piece. The main difference is that Rhode Island, the Rhode Island program, so the Affordable uh, Solar Access Pathways, or ASAP, that came out post-IRA. So that means the low-income adders, uh, the ITC adders, are folded into the program. Ah,
0: so it's sort of built around the IRA money. A little
1: yes, bit. And then the, the way that this is going to work, uh, and the, they, so they also just selected their, um, they ran an RFP and selected a vendor, which also happens to be Posigen. Huh. Uh, that's going to be the first, uh, the, so that's you know brand new information. I think it's, uh, it's, it's public for Posigen, but I'm not sure it's fully public yet, but I, I cleared it with them. I'm allowed to say <laughs> it. <laughs> the big thing there is that when the RFP was launched, we asked the private sector, what level of incentive do you need to get to like this level of savings for a homeowner? And then not only that, but what levels of incentives or what kind of money are you going to send back to the consumer or to the program, whichever you choose, if you get access to extra incentives through the tax credits, right? Mm. So now you have not 30%, but maybe 40%, maybe 50%, maybe 60 how is that shared with the customer, with the ultimate customer? So that's that's what one of the questions that was being asked in the R. Yeah,
0: I guess you do want to take care to design these things so you're not sort yeah. of like inadvertently just using public money to make a particular solar company richer super rich.
1: <laughs> yes. Cause I mean it's great that they are that they're motivated to do this and you do want the private sector motivated to do this, but ultimately it's gotta create benefits for the LMI consumer, right. right? That's the most important piece of this.
0: So if I'm a state and I am looking at Connecticut and saying hey that's cool what you did you you created enormous savings for these households you installed whatever megawatts of of new solar I you know our state wants to do something similar it strikes me that this is among other things just administratively there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle here there's a lot mm-hmm. of sort of so what are the kinds of things that if I'm a state that wants to replicate this or, 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 or do something similar, what do I need in place before I do this? And then like one of the, you know, one of the questions that always comes up for me is just a simple one, which is just sort of how do you identify LMI communities? Is there, mm. what is there, is there a common national metric or is every oh, state sort of every state kind of bespoke figuring it out on their own? And, and just in general, like if I'm a state, like what do I need to do to get ready if I want to do something like this?
1: So on the question of what the states have to do to get ready, I think the probably the most important thing, if you wanted to do the same thing as Connecticut, would be make sure that your uh, legislation enables third-party ownership very clearly. Because there's nothing that turns off a contractor or a developer quite so quickly as telling them, "So we're not too sure. <laughs> uh, we're not entirely sure what the regulatory uh, context is like." Um, <laughs> but just before you can enable LMI solo, you have to have a, a, a friendly solar policy. Just generally speaking, right? Mm-hmm. So. Do you have net metering enabled? The, and and uh, what I'm going to say is not relevant to the Connecticut program, but do you have community solar enabled? Is it authorized in your state? Can everybody do it? Or is it something that only, you know, the two utilities that are in the state can do and, oh, by the way, they don't want to do it. So it's just not happening. <laughs> so these these things are, are, are good places to start. But in terms of how you figure out where your low and moderate income communities are located, this of different ways of doing it. Um, There's states that have gone through very lengthy process, stakeholder processes and regulatory processes. Uh, You can think of uh, California is one, new, uh, New York is another to try to figure out what constitutes a disadvantaged community or low and moderate income community. There are lots of different terms floating out there. And those states have gone through the process and they've talked to people uh, whose livelihoods are really directly touched by these things, right? Not just policymakers, but people in communities. And then the federal government kind of stacks on top of it and says, well, I'm going to define (laughs) low-income community for this program this different way, and then for that other program a different way. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a mishmash of all sorts of definition. Often you'll have for the state definitions, a mix of ethnic and uh, racial kind of threshold, foreign languages. You'll have Poverty levels, essentially, uh, you can have sometimes unemployment levels, but yeah, those this this mapping question is complicated. Well, I mean, it,
0: I mean, the Ira has a ton of you know adders and, and sort of set asides for justice communities. Yeah. So it seems to me like this is a national concern. Like you're gonna have yes, you need some common metric because there's so much money on you know at stake here. Like it really matters how these things get defined.
1: So, you do need some common metric, but also states are very different, right? So, a state like Vermont, which is very rural and very white, is going to be different from a state like, I don't know, California, Right. right? Which has a lot of urban spaces and a lot of people of color, big Hispanic population. So, you can't quite blanket define everything. But I think some, some at least definition of what the factors need to be, right? So states maybe need to um, uh, have a definition that fits, you know, those four criteria that include race and ethnicity, that include poverty level, that include X, Y, Z, with with kind of flexibility in what those need to be might be helpful. One of the things that we're trying to do that we're work we're working in uh, in Colorado on a community solar program and on a community solar project. pilot project for manufactured homes. And Colorado does a lot of work with the Weatherization Assistance Program, WAP. They've been doing a lot of work on that for a long time. And they were the first state to use federal dollars, to be authorized to use federal dollars from the WAP program to install solar. They're moving away from that at the moment because it's too complicated. But they still want to coordinate the WAP program and the solar program, the web program is going to is going to use whatever the web program uses, which is a percentage of the federal poverty level. Whereas the other programs that they're going to build are going to be using their local flavored uh, definition of right. income and uh, race and ethnicity and et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it's it's all a big a big mess,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but a big good. beautiful mess. <laughs> a big beautiful mess. Oh, one thing I wanted to double back on. I meant to ask this when we were talking about Connecticut. Um, Specifically about the renter issue, because this is something, you know, this is something I I get questions about all the time. Like I rent, like what can I do? And I'm how – Community solar. Is this how – I mean you said – you mentioned that Connecticut doesn't have community solar as a big piece or –
1: No, they do. They do have community solar.
0: Is this the primary way of overcoming this sort of landlord-tenant split incentive
1: I think it is. I think it is. Although, so um, there are some programs, there's a program in Hawaii, for instance, uh, through the Hawaii Green Infrastructure Authority, that's allowing renters to participate in leases, essentially. Mm. Uh, and they have on-bill financing uh, that, that's enabling that with the Hawaii Electric Company. So, and that's working, I think, I mean, hopefully it will work really well. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, a, that's a new program. It's called the GEMS Energy Services Programme. But yet, just generally speaking, outside of exceptions like that uh, of, of Hawaii, community solar is definitely the way to go. I mean, it's the way to go, f- not not for renters only, but also if you just have trees around your house and you can't access the sun.
0: What if you want to get solar panels on a big apartment building? An apartment building, say, that is occupied mostly by LMI <laughs> Yeah, people. Is there anything in the in these programs that can work with landlords or get around that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I think the the Soma program in California would be one that applies to that, and it's it applies to uh, affordable housing, uh, really. So the way that it's structured, and I'm not super super familiar with it because uh, it's not what I focus on, but one of the interesting pieces is. So HUD, the way that they define the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the way that they provide funding for folks is that they request that the rent and the utility be kind of lumped into one payment, Mm. um, which is good for a number of things. But then when you start installing solar on something, it makes it more difficult because any changes to how much you pay in utility will trigger an increase in your rent. So that kind of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's not super helpful. And they worked with the the program in California, they worked with HUD to kind of get rid of that. So that was a, a good piece of the puzzle. And they're renters. They're renters. But you got to work directly with the nonprofits that own the affordable housing, and that's that's not easy. They have lots of lots of things to figure out, and yeah. lots of other issues to figure out, right? Yeah,
0: that seems like a, an, an area where like a super simplified model that you could just repli- you know, replicate across. Yeah would be helpful. We're running out of time. And and one of the big, (laughs) one of the big things I wanted to ask you about was the reason that this whole conversation was prompted in the first place was a new report uh, that just came out, which is specifically looking at how nonprofit foundations can sort of enter this LMI solar space, induce help, uh, support. Um, We don't have a ton of time, but maybe you could just say a few words about if I'm a, a foundation and this seems like a Good thing that I want to do. Are there mm-hmm. models? How do I how do I get involved?
1: Yeah. So first, you should read the report. <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course, go, always read the report.
1: Energize your impact. It's on the CISO website. But what i want to say is true. I think for states, it's true for the federal government, it's true for the foundations, it's true for the green banks. If you are building or looking interested in in supporting LMI solar, you need. Three pieces. You need the capital, you need the customers, and you need the capacity. The capital, it, there are tons of different ways for foundations to uh, provide capital. That's what the report is about. And we focus on really, we go in depth in some of the fancier ways, the guarantees, the the equity investments. There's
0: grants, there's loans, there's loan mm-hmm. guarantees.
1: Yeah, And equity, I didn't know that uh, before starting this research. I had absolutely no idea that uh, foundations could do equity investments. I I just, it Mm. it blew my mind (laughs) when (laughs) I heard that was possible. So that's your, your capital. Then you have your customer side. Uh, right, Where are you going to find your customer? How do you help people find customers? So right. That's the that's second big bucket. And the third bucket is the capacity. And there are models in there um, that kind of look through how you build capacity in LMI communities and particularly in uh, um, either the LMI serving institutions or the nonprofits that kind of support these communities and one model, I guess, that I'd like to point out is called Technical Assistance Fund from our sister organization, the Clean Energy Group, that's explained in the report, is really about finding that trusted third-party advisor to help a community figure out or a community institution figure out, like, what are the options out there to start with, mm. right? If you want to build a pipeline of projects, you need to actually help the projects be born. And that's not, that sounds completely. Obvious to say <laughs> but you can have all the capital in the world if there are no projects to apply it to, because people don't know what they need. you know, do I need a big battery or a small battery? Right. Do I need a battery at all? Like what kind of solar can I can I use? Can I put it on my house? Can I put it on my uh, you know hospital? Can I should I put it in a field over there? like how <laughs> right. how does this work? just generally speaking? Who is
0: that? Who is that? <laughs> I mean who are those trusted? How do you find those? People like what are who are those entities?
1: They're contractors, and I think the fact that they're they're trusted just means that they're they're not selling you the final products, right? So mm. generally speaking, the developer will be the person that tells you this is what you need. Believe me, this is what you right. need. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> And I'm going to sell you for I'm gonna sell <laughs> and it, to it, you and for it the just so happens price. I've got oh, it. Yeah, I've got it. <laughs> Exactly, and that does not necessarily inspire trust. So you really want kind of a third party there to be able to help figure out what the options are. And these are just essentially engineering firms that uh, look at look at your your situation, look at your needs, and and try to help you make sense of it. So that's a big thing.
0: So a foundation can just support and and fund
1: mm-hmm. yeah, those. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really uh, fundamental piece of the equation there's a um piece an editorial piece that was written by uh, joe evans who works at the kresge foundation and who's absolutely brilliant uh, in all this stuff but also uh, wrote an op-ed uh, aptly named it's the demand side stupid and <laughs> <laughs> i think is. Uh, it's not subtle, but it gets to the <laughs> point, right? It's like you need all of it, right? You need the the capital, the consumers, and the capacity for uh, this to be successful. And you need to
0: basically cultivate and educate customers. Like this is one yeah. of those kind of areas where you just can't rely on a market. You had, in, in some sense, you're creating market demand by, by yeah. educating.
1: Oh, it's absolutely – it's all about building markets. It's all about building markets.
0: Right. This has been awesome. As a final question, mm-hmm. um, I just was wondering – Sort of, what is the prize here? Like, how, say, we just got low and moderate income households up to parity so that they're installing solar at the same rate, say, as other households. How much power in terms of like megawatts and gigawatts is this a substantial amount of energy we're talking about? Or is this mostly about these sort of extra energy benefits for these communities? Or is this really a substantial amount of?
1: It's big yeah it's big so and and uh, I was thinking earlier, you know even if you're if you don't care about all the reasons why you would need lm a uh, solar on lmI buildings, if you have no human <laughs> there's not a human bone in your body <laughs> that thinks it's just fair and good and just. Uh, and <laughs> for some reason, you only think about the grid. <laughs> um, it's, I, know, it's about, I know some people like this. <laughs> yeah, they're out there. There are some of them. The, the solar potential of low and moderate income household is about 40%, 42% to be precise, according to uh, NREL, of the total U.S. residential potential, right? So uh, it's a pretty big chunk that's out there.
0: So it's almost half the rooftops.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So that's not a small market, to no, <laughs> to, no,
1: no. To it's on. not a small market. It's a big market. It can have a huge impact in terms of the grid and the climate, and obviously a huge human impact for the people that are buying it. And right,
0: uh, and and I, it's worth saying because I don't, I don't know if we mentioned it earlier, but it's like you know, the 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 households themselves get immediate benefit you know, in terms of their uh, energy bills lowering and they get, you know, positive income to start off with. But over time, this stuff also accrues, right? These benefits also accrue Mm -hmm. to the next generation and to, and, you know, uh, uh, air pollution lowering affects, you know, children. So these, these are, these benefits are, are, are compounding, compounding over time. Mm
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Vero, thank you so much for uh, coming and decoding this uh, this area for me. It sounds like lots uh, is happening, and no, um, thank you. Th- the money is raining down, and we're all <laughs> we're all dancing around.
1: Yeah, we're all <laughs> dancing around trying to figure out how is this all going to work. <laughs> but this is a very exciting time, and you know, if there is one thing that I would want people to remember is that lmi solar really matters it can make a huge difference in people's lives and it doesn't happen by accident it needs to be designed so um, you know get out there and design stuff
0: (laughs) awesome thank you so much for coming on
1: thank you so much bye
0: thank you for listening to the volts podcast it is ad-free powered entirely by listeners like you if you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volt subscriber at VOLTS.WTF. Yes, that's VOLTS.WTF, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.